Who knew? Anyway, so this uh, teaching uh, from the Buddha is something I'll be returning to. Uh, it's really quite pithy and direct and to the point. And uh, as we go forward today, even as you engage these preliminary announcements I'm going to make in a moment, see what it's like to continually sort of relax uh, and let things in your own experience be simply as they are, sounds being as they are, sights as they are, thoughts and desires, intentions, hopes, dreams, memories, all of it, the whole kit and caboodle, uh, being as it is, and seeing what it's like increasingly to let any kind of uh, pressured or tense or contracted adding to what is in the stream of experience fall away. In other words, bringing it very down to earth to your own experience, seeing what it's like to stay present with what's in the field of consciousness while simultaneously relaxing into it, relaxing as it, and letting go. And this day, in a lot of ways, is uh, an experiential inquiry into this simple, direct matter in our relationship to our own experience. And... Uh, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to that process. As the Buddha said, you know, his dharma was good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So anywhere along the way, we are with this process that I've just described of relaxing and letting go uh, and releasing clinging and grasping of various kinds. Uh, that process, of course, can go all the way, which is where it went with Bahia here, and I'll say more about this later. Okay, so... This is today, not self in the brain. Um, much of neuroscience is not useful, I think, for personal practice. It might be cool, it might be intellectually interesting, but it doesn't have practical value particularly. And it's helpful to appreciate that, of course, the Buddha and many others in the last 2,500 years have become awakened or moved a long way toward that without ever having seen an MRI picture. All right? That said, I think there are certain areas, in my own view, that um, neuroscience has contributions to make uh, to our understanding of the mind and uh, also contributions to our practices with the mind. And one of those intersections that I think is particularly fertile uh, is in this territory of relaxing the sense of me, myself, and I, and using certain neuroscience to really appreciate that this mysterious character me, uh, can actually not ever be found in the brain, let alone in one's personal experience. And that has big implications. So that's the territory of this workshop today. Uh, these are the topics I hope to cover. Uh, I'll set up the kind of foundation as best I can with this, with this kind of experiential investigation into what I call the two truths of futility on the one hand, that's the bad news, and fullness, on the other hand, that's the good news. And then uh, we'll get into a discussion uh, based on some experiences of uh, what does it mean really to have a self, this apparent I? And then also what is the actual presence of that apparent I in the brain? Hmm? And then uh, we'll step back and think about how it evolved and the sense of I that's very prominent in the human species more prominent than in any other species, as best we can tell. And move, then we'll move increasingly, definitely after lunch, into very practical practices having to do with taking life less personally. As, as it is apparently said, both in monasteries and on death row, no self, no problem. 
right? So how do we actually do that rather than getting our knickers in a twist when we take life personally? Uh, paradoxically, one way to take life less personally is to feed the hungry heart, to actually internalize as very social animals, human beings, to internalize a sense of being cared for by others and appreciated and valued as a person, but not necessarily as a self. Uh, I think, uh, I can't recall the name of the uh, Thai teacher who said this, uh, it's really clear in writing, it's really clear in print, but I think you can get the basic idea. In a way, this whole workshop, you could say, especially this part right here that I just mentioned about feeding the hungry heart, could be summarized as, love yourself. Just don't love your self. Right? Okay. And then uh, we'll come back to the Bahia Sutta toward the very end and kind of see what it's like to go as far out as we can in a one-day workshop out into the deep end of the pool. So you can see the territory here. It's fairly ambitious. Um, I'm Just so you know about me a little bit, I'm a psychologist, clinical psychologist, neuropsychologist. I started meditating in 1974. It was very romantic and naive on my part. I had long hair, gold room glasses, and a wood flute, and it was all very cool. And yet, it was a lot better than my normal neurotic grumbling upstairs. Uh, so that was the beginning of my own journey. Um, I've been involved here at Spirit Rock for about 20 years. Uh, we started with our kids when they were young in the family program, and then I got more and more involved here. Uh, and so I really love Spirit Rock. I really appreciate this place. And uh, if you've never been here before, I really encourage you to check it out, have fun, you know, look around. Um, if you don't mind, just don't go past the lower gate the, or the gate up there um, in the morning. Uh, from lunch onward, you can definitely go past it and kind of look around up there. They're going to be setting up the various rooms for events tonight, so uh, it's okay to poke your head in. Just be thoughtful about getting in the way of people who are bustling about, but really enjoy this place. Uh, it's nearly a square mile of really refuge, sanctuary in Marin County, and, and really quite special, and a, a leading institution, actually, uh, in Buddhism worldwide. So, okay, great. Now, one thing about this material before we dive in too fully, too much into it, um, it's a combination of experiencing and insight. And this territory in terms of Buddhist teachings, that's our framework here, obviously. This is a Buddhist workshop in a Buddhist center. Uh, the framework around this is that the Buddha uh, had some real teachings about the apparent I and by implication the larger nature of things altogether as endlessly changing, transient, impermanent, and arising interdependently such that if you think about it, no thing, and certainly no experience, has any absolute self-existence. Right? So that piece of it, the insight part of it, uh, is really important. And unfortunately, it can get heady, philosophical, and abstract, and uh, and we can get lost in what the Buddha called a thicket of views. So we want to be careful about that. There's this middle way, of course, it's Buddhism, who knew, but where we are engaged with insight, on the one hand, right down the middle of the fairway, if you will, without slipping into a kind of fogginess about the way it really is, nor slipping into, on the other hand, into over-intellectualizing or kind of getting lost in our head. 
there's a place for insight. Uh, I was on the board at Spirit Rock for nine years. We have term limits here, so for the civilians, the people not on the teachers' council. So I term limited off, which is good for all considered probably. But very early on in my tenure on the board, I lucked out. Uh, the Dalai Lama came here uh, for a conference of teachers at Spirit Rock. It was pretty neat. This was about 15 years ago. And um, I got to be in a relatively small gathering as far as the Dalai Lama is concerned, only about 150 people. And after he, and he gave this marvelous teaching, there was a lot about it that was really neat. But there was one moment, and this was the moment, of course, that showed up on the front cover, the front page, rather, of the San Francisco Chronicle, the morning paper. Uh, he was going on, <clears throat> and the gathering was mostly teachers, almost entirely teachers, very senior people in Buddhism, with a few lucky souls like myself and my wife. And uh, at one point, he paused while talking about this very important Tibetan text, very fundamental, very foundational, the teachings of, and I'm embarrassed to say I forget who it was, and he said, looking around the room, starting to notice the blank stares, oh, you've read Kirti, right? And you could just see the guilty expressions kind of sweeping around the room. He paused, he looked around the room, and he went, hmm, that was it. <laughs> but we were like, oh, my God. The Dalai Lama went, hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like the ultimate authority figure, whatever. Anyway, so, um, and then he paused, he looked, he said, you know, study is really important. It's very important to study, to understand things. Otherwise, you become, this is what he did. Otherwise, you become like little mouse. You know, that's, of course, the photograph that was on the front page of the morning paper, you know, like that. Uh, you know, you might be kind of uh, sort of happy, but you don't understand anything. And okay, so there is a place for insight, for understanding. It's said in Buddhism that there are three pillars of practice, uh, sila, samadhi, and panya in Pali, the language of the teachings of early Buddhism. Sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila being virtue, samadhi being concentration, attentional training, awareness training, mindfulness altogether, and panya, wisdom, insight, including liberating insight. So uh, we'll be definitely engaging uh, some conceptual material here. The trick is to help it become a felt recognition of the nature of experience and the nature of all things. Okay, so let's dive in. Um, how many of, just kind of double, just kind of check, for how many of you is this your first time at Spirit Rock? Great, super duper welcome. Uh, how many of you uh, have um, broadening the notion of meditation to include prayer, which is of course utterly appropriate as another kind of contemplative practice? How many of you meditate a minute or more a month? A minute or more a month. So low bar. Okay, good. No more questions. That's great. So you have some sense of what we're going to do. All right. So in a moment, what I'd like to do is go into um, a little practice with you. I'll make a few suggestions, and, and I'll try to keep them to a minimum. A uh, little detail there. Personally, I don't particularly enjoy listening to guided practices. You know, I'm fairly independent. I kind of want to go my own way. That said, I think guided practices are a kind of necessary evil. And so... Um, with apologies, I will be doing some guided practices with you. And feel very free in any of the experiential activities here to take good care of yourself and uh, ignore my suggestions entirely. 
uh, or alter them or adapt them to your own purposes. And also in general too, be comfortable here. We'll take a break in the morning and a break in the afternoon as well as a lunch break. I'll end very, very close to five o'clock sharp, plus or minus a couple minutes. Um, I really you know, invite you to stay to the end of the day. There's gonna be a lot of great material in the afternoon, including toward the end of the afternoon. Um, and meanwhile, if you like, uh, before there are breaks, if you wanna get up, get some tea, use the bathroom, just kind of, you know, um, disengage from the material for some reason, if that's who you want to, that's perfectly all right. Just have a little thought, obviously, about people nearby. Okay, so let's get to it. All right, two truths. So in a moment, I'm gonna suggest we do a kind of a, an ex a little meditation. And in this meditation, uh, I'm encouraging you to do what you can to establish a certain steadiness of presence and simultaneously become increasingly aware of the passing of your experience. Even aware of the powerful truth that as soon as any experience appears in the mind, it's gone. It's gone. And the closer you get to that recognition, the more it can feel both thrilling and disorienting, you may find that you conceptualize about the recognition, which is perfectly natural. Oh my goodness, experience is continually changing. As soon as you're involved in that conceptualization, you're out of the experiential recognition of it, that there is impermanence radically of our own experience. But that's okay. But just try not to get too conceptual about it. A little bit of conceptualization can go a long way. All right? And if it gets alarming at all, of recognizing the falling away of experience beneath your feet, actually moment by moment by moment. Also recognize the other side of the truth, which is that in every moment as well, there's a new arising of experiencing. So it's kind of a sense that you can take refuge in, almost like a fountain, you know? It's always falling away, and there you are hanging out, you know, as the fountain shoots up, in bubbles here, you know, like a jet of water right around here. This is where we're hanging out in consciousness. In any moment, the drops are falling away, as it were. And yet, also in every moment, there is, an, there is a renewing of this moment of experience that we can take refuge in emotionally and not be so alarmed in the recognition of the falling away, the vanishing of each moment of experience. Okay? So in a moment, let's try it. First, I should do a little sound check. My voice uh, tends to get a little soft. How are you doing in the back of the room in terms of hearing it? Is it okay? That's a thumb up. Okay, good. That's really great. Okay. Um, we'll be adjusting the temperature in here. Is the day louder? Okay. Maybe we could turn up the volume of the thingy. All right. Someone is listening out there. Katie. See, Katie's listening to us in her office. You just didn't know that. Big sister, right? Okay, thanks. So we'll crank it up a smidgey. Thanks a lot. Great. Okay, no worries. Um, also, we'll be playing around with temperature, ventilation in the room. It's a big room. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things about uh, the noble truth of suffering is that you can't please everybody all the time, right? So we're going to have temperature dukkha in here, I'm sure. Dukkha is the word for suffering in Pali in the early translation, early words of the, the Buddhist teaching. Anyway, long story short, but we'll just do the best we can. Okay. okay, so let's do a little practice here. So if you could, come into a sense of being present here and now in your own experience. 
One of the nice things about this is a sense of you don't have to work anymore. You don't have to plan anything. You don't have to be anybody. You can really let go and let down and just be here with your eyes open or closed, letting the body relax. Finding something to rest attention on, such as the sensations of breathing, perhaps at one place like the upper lip, or in the torso altogether, or at some other spot like in the belly. And if you want to use a different object of attention, such as a word or uh, a feeling, that's perfectly okay, or a sensation elsewhere in the body. Uh, For some people, especially those who've been really stressed or even traumatized, attention to the breath or even the body can feel uncomfortable. And if that's, a, if that's true for you, it's really okay to pick something else. And then while remaining aware of the object of attention as a kind of uh, anchor for you, I think of it a little bit for myself as like a buoy in a gentle sea, warm, gentle sea of experience rising and falling with just a little bit of an arm resting on the buoy so one is not swept away by the various waves of thought, staying with the object of attention and then letting the waves of experience, sensation, sound, feelings move through you. (laughs) 